Well, we're continuing in our series called a Reformation Starter Kit. And since this is Reformation Sunday, it's fitting, I should think. And um, the idea behind this series is that um, any church that has grown weak and impotent and irrelevant to their community or to, their, to the next generation and wants to regain some potency and wants to be again, again a life of fruitfulness can come back to these foundational teachings, these are the foundational teachings of the Reformation, and experience Reformation. The Bible says that to be transformed, it must begin in the mind. Your mind must be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Paul says, and the way your mind is transformed is by what? The Word of God through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to change your thinking and to change your perspective so that your life then changes. Many people want the fruit of Christianity. They want the life change. They want the blessings. They want the happy marriage. They want the marriage. They want um, the balanced lifestyle and all of the various prosperity blessings that come from Christianity. The friends and the community and the life of purpose, they want these things, but they aren't willing to do what it takes to have their perspective changed, to have their mind changed. If you don't sow seeds of attentiveness to the Word of God, then you can't expect to be changed. You want to grow in grace? Amen? Who doesn't want to grow in grace? But along with growing in grace is what? Growing in knowledge of the Word of God. So, in other words, the devil builds his culture and his community with his words, his messages. He is a messenger. He's an angel. And God builds his culture, builds his community with his word. And by what means does God deliver his word into your minds? God doesn't audibly speak into our um, ears, usually. And he doesn't usually give us visions, although he has in past. But typically, it's through the preaching and the teaching of God's word. So if you attend church and you attend the teaching of God's word and you listen to to lessons and sermons online and you read the Bible and you read Christian books, you will have the word of God going into your mind, which will transform your thinking, which will then transform your actions, which will then transform your sphere of influence. But if you don't put the seeds in the ground of attentiveness to his word, you can't change. And so all of that to say, if a church wants to change, if a family wants to change, if a person wants to change, it has to begin with certain fundamental teachings of the Word of God. Amen? And uh, we're calling those the foundational teachings or the foundations of the Reformation, how to, how to be reformed, how to be reconstructed, how to be transformed. Right beliefs lead to right behavior. All right, so in last week, we saw the centrality of Christ over all things and salvation. The week before that, we saw the sovereignty of God over all things, including salvation. And today, we're going to see the authority of God's law over everything, over all of life. With me so far? All right, what are we looking at today? The authority of God's law over all of life. So God is sovereign. We already said that. And he rules over this world sovereignly. And he rules through Jesus Christ, whom he appointed over the whole earth at the ascension, and whom he gave authority over heaven and earth. And so God is sovereignly ruling over all of creation through his Son. And how does his Son administrate that rule? But it is in part through his law. It's through his law. He gives us law. 
And so if God is sovereign and an authority over all of life, so too is his law, authority and authoritative over all of life. Amen? Our will is not authoritative. Our will may desire to do what we please on the Lord's day, for example. But God's law says that we are to do what he wills and what pleases him on the Lord's day. Amen? And every other day. Our will may want to do business a certain way, and our wisdom might think that our will is the best way, but God's will is the one that is authoritative over our business and over our affairs, and he communicates that will through his law. That's our authority. And um, if you want to be blessed, then you have to put that yoke on you. What does David say in Psalm chapter 1? He says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of God, and on his law he meditates day and night. So blessed is the man, let's be more specific here. I'll just wait till y'all look this way. All right. <laughs> blessed is the man who meditates on the law of God day and night, which is another way of saying blessed is the man who goes to church and brings his family to church and doesn't use lame excuses and doesn't worship his uh, beauty sleep. Blessed is that man. And blessed is the man who reads his Bible. And blessed is the man who listens to sermons and reads Christian books and dwells on the word. That's the man that's happy. And the man that's not that way is unhappy. Isn't that clear? That's very, that's very, very specific and very, very easy, really. Very easy. You put that yoke on you if you want to have a happy life. And that yoke is his law revealed in the Bible. And his yoke is hard and burdensome and miserable. No, it's easy. It's an easy yoke. Of course, you've got to put it on before you find that out, right? Before, it looks really hard, but you put it on, you'll find out it's easy, and it'll make you happy. Amen. So we're going to look at a few things. We're going to look at the nature of God's law, the revelation of God's law, etc. Let's uh, begin with the nature of God's law. That is, it's essential characteristics. And this is important for you to understand. Essentially, the law first flows from God. It is not something that God submits to. It is not something over God or on the side of God. Zeus and, and uh, Apollo and Dionysius, they submitted to a law that was over them. God does not submit to a law that is over him or on the side of him. All things were created by God, rather visible and invisible, and that includes the revelation of his law. It flows from him. It is from his heart, so to speak. All the laws that we speak of in society, the laws of logic, the laws of thought, the laws of mathematics, the laws of reason, the laws of prosperity that we've been going over in, in church, the laws of harvest like reaping and sowing, all those laws flow from his heart. And the laws of marriage and the laws of, of uh, business and how to speak honestly, all of that flows from him. It flows from God and so therefore it reveals God. If you want to know what God is like, what do you look at? You look at the law, not exclusively. What is the ultimate revelation of what God is? Jesus. Right? But Jesus has laws, and you can look at the laws. Just because we have the ultimate revelation, which is Jesus, doesn't mean the older revelations fall away. Right? <clears throat> and Jesus is a person who is a lawgiver who speaks. So not only do we look at him and, and his lifestyle, we're also looking at him in the sense of listening to what comes out of his mouth. And that's what tells us his law that also tells us what God is like. It reveals God. And not only that, 
It teaches us how to live like God would live. It teaches us how to imitate God. Paul says, be imitators of God, which is another way of saying, obey the law. Obey God's law. It's just another way of saying the exact same thing because the law is revealing his character. When you obey the law, you are behaving in accord with his character. And when you are perfect as he is perfect, or when you behave holy because he is holy, it pleases him. Want to know how to please him? Obey his commandments. Right? They are not eternal moral ideals. They are not natural laws. Um, they are flowing from the heart of God, revealing God, and showing us how to live. Amen? All right. <clears throat> now, not only does the, the, the law reveal God and flow from God, as I said, it teaches us how to live. The Old Testament word for law was what? Does anyone know the Old Testament Hebrew word for law? Torah. And Torah means what? Obsolete since Jesus came? Is that what Torah means? Only for Jews? Is that what Torah means? What does it mean? Uh, general principles that we can generally live by? No, Torah means teaching. It means instruction. It also means law. But the, the use of the word Torah emphasizes one, na- one aspect of the law in that it, it, it shows you how to live. The Torah is the way. Now, Jesus is ultimately the way, but flowing from Jesus, from his heart and from his mouth, is the word which reveals the way to us. Make sense? So if Jesus is the sun, his law is the rays of the sun through which we can see more of him and live in the light of him. The Torah is the way. It's how to live. And now, which books of the Bible are explicitly and literally the Torah? The first five. And those first five are not only for Jews, but they are for Gentiles. They're for all those who are grafted into the family of God. They're for all of mankind, says Paul in Romans 1 through 3, that all men are to be held accountable to them. If you want to be happy in this life, learn his law, meditate on his law day and night, learning how to apply it to every area of your life, every area you want to be reformed in, family, church, state, vocation, business, health, whatever area you want to be sanctified and transformed in, meditate on his law, delight in his law, and by his spirit, begin to put that into practice, and you will become a happier person. Amen? All right. Second, the, the um, revelation of God's law. If God reveals, if the law reveals God and shows us how to live, how does he get it into our brains? How does it come to us? Um, there's two ways. Does anyone know the two forms of revelation? Natural and special, yeah. Those are, the, those are the terms, natural and special. And uh, Kevin's got one for us for natural. Romans 2, verses 14 through 15. Notice this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So let me restate that for you. For when the Gentiles who do not have the Torah, the Bible, which gives the explicit details of God's instructions for man when they don't have it, but by nature do what the law requires. Be faithful to their wives. Don't murder someone even though you're angry, etc. When they do those things, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Continuing, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. 
while their conscience also bears witness. Now you see the phrase there, they have a conscience, it bears witness, it gives a testimony. And that testimony either excuses or accuses them. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So they have a conscience which shows them how to live. Thank God that God in in, in his common grace gave the law of God, at least in its general sense, into the hearts of pagans. Or else this this world might, you know go into nuclear uh, ap- you know, apocalypse tomorrow. But even pagans know some, to some degree that you can't cut in line. Well, usually they know they, that others can't cut in line in front of them. But, but when they say, what did you just do? You just cut in front of line. They now have shown to the court of heaven and to everyone around that they know that law. And whether or not they keep it is, well, to be seen. But that is natural revelation. That's how God naturally um, shows his law to all of mankind. But then there's special revelation, and that comes from the word of God. And in special revelation, it teaches us the details. It teaches us the details. It's no longer obscure or clouded by sin and corrupted by false teachers, but it comes to us infallibly and perfectly and clearly in the text of Scripture with details that we should be careful to obey. Make sense? And this special and this natural law are not contradictory to each other. They don't contradict each other in any way, shape, or form. And, uh, and this twofold revelation of God's law began in the Garden of Eden. What was the special revelation given to um, Adam? <clears throat> don't, that was the negative. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what was the positive? What was the affirmative law? Have dominion over all the earth. But there was something that uh, was necessary for Adam to do if he was going to do that one. Because, you know, Adam can only be in one space at a, in time. He can't exercise dominion over Peru and China. So he, would, he and his wife would have to what? <clears throat> Be fruitful and multiply if they, if they were going to fulfill the, the dominion mandate, which is the first command given to man and our purpose in life. Um, <clears throat> and so he was given special revelation, the dominion mandate, be fruitful and multiply, have a bunch of children. And, um, but did he also have a conscience? Did he also have natural revelation? I mean, I don't see anywhere in there where it told him not to murder. But we know that murder was a law because when Cain killed Abel, Cain felt guilty and he had a conscience and God um, judged him according to that. So even in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, you have both a natural and a special revelation. And we still have it to this day. Let's look at uh, Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. This is referring to special revelation, God's special revelation of his law, of his character, of how to live in the Bible. It's perfect. Now, is the conscience of a human perfect? Can it be perfectly trusted? No. As a pastor, I've had to tell people that their conscience is wrong all the time. Whether their conscience is 
condemning them for no good reason or excusing them when it shouldn't be excusing them. Our consciences are fallen and are not aligned with the Bible fully yet. As you grow, your conscience becomes more aligned with the Bible. But when you first begin to become a Christian, your conscience is aligned with your tradition, with all the things that your teachers before you added to the law and took away from the law. It's corrupted and twisted, and, and you make allowances for things, and you uh, harshly judge and are overly scrupulous in other areas. But your conscience can be aligned biblically if you will repent of all of your tradition and repent of your personal experiences and your personal desires and, and study the Bible and meditate on it. You can, your conscience can be aligned to the Bible, which is super important, super important. And, uh, and, and once it is aligned to the Bible, then you can trust it. But the law of the Lord, as communicated in the Bible, is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord, which is another word for the law, <clears throat> is sure. Testimony emphasizes the fact that law reveals, law manifests his character. So not only is it a law written down on paper, it's also a testimony. It tells you what he's like. It's like a witness on the stand. It's sure. It, that means you can trust it with certainty. And it make, makes wise the simple. And we need that. Amen? We are simple in so many ways. And especially if you're a new believer and you haven't been discipled and you've been in a, a, a church that is still uh, governed by the traditions of men, then you need the law of God written down in the Bible to make you wise. What, a good, what good news there. Let's continue. The precepts of the Lord, another word for law, are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Wisdom and the transformation of life and a blessed, happy life is more important than money. Even the Beatles knew that. You know, you can't buy me love, something like that, right? <clears throat> Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Amen. One more. Is that it? That's it. So, does everyone see how that works? I hope so. <clears throat> now, um, is this legalism? No. We're going to talk about that in a second, but just in case there's anyone here that is, uh, they're having the knee-jerk reaction that was cultivated in them as a child, as they sat under terrible teaching. Y'all know that? You get, if you sit under terrible teaching for a long time, it puts knee-jerk reactions inside of you, so that when you hear this, you're like, that sounds like legalism, all right? But that's the Old Testament. You might have these weird knee-jerk reactions. This is not legalism, right? We're just shotgun blasting you with Bible verses to show you that the law is good. But I thought we weren't under the law. There you go, another knee-jerk cliche. We aren't under the law. That means we are under grace. What that means is we're no longer under the law's condemnation. We don't have to walk as guilty prisoners in chains and jumpsuits, right? We're not, we don't live under the condemnation of the law. We live under a canopy of grace because we have the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus didn't die so that you could be free from obedience. He died so that you'd have the power to obey. Okay, good. Yes, a question somewhere? Uh, yes, Aaron. I'm going to give you four definitions of legalism in a few minutes. All right, that's great. I'm glad you're, you're, we're thinking the same way here. Now, if he does reveal the law in the word of God, what portion of the word of God is he revealing 
himself, which is another way of saying expressing his law. You know, what portion of the Bible is that in? It's in all of the Bible, which is why we say all of the Bible for all of life. He, he reveals his law in various forms. He reveals it through poetry, you know, poetically riffing off the law. He reveals it in historical narrative, showing what happens when you disobey his law. Right? If you want to know what, it mean, what, what happens to you if you obey his law, you can read where he tells you. If you obey his law, there will be blessings and long life in the land. Or you can read a story about how someone disregarded that and blew their life up. It's still his law. It's revealing his law through narrative, through poetry, through precept, through um, interrogatives, rhetorical questions, through declarative statements, through commands and imperatives. His law is revealed to you in all of the Bible. So no no matter where you're reading the Bible, you can be reading about God and about his law, about how to live. Amen? Makes sense? And, and on top of that, um, that law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. That's the summary of it. And then it's summarized even more in the two commandments. They asked Jesus, basically, what was the most important law? And he said, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And those two, within those two commands hangs all the law and the prophets. So that's the summary of God's law. That's the summary of God's law. But when you have the summary, that doesn't negate the details. It's a summary. Imagine someone thinking the cliff notes to Moby Dick uh, replaces the actual novel or the cliff notes to um, Pride and Prejudice. Oh, I have the cliff notes, so I throw out the actual book. No, you don't do that. The cliff notes is to help you summarize and get your simple mind around it because there's a lot there. So you want to start off with the summaries and the simplicity. But how many people say, no, no, we don't have to obey God's law. We just have to love. That's an absolutely ridiculous statement. You're saying the exact same thing twice, right? To love is to keep the law because the law is a manifestation of God's character, which God is love, All right? Good. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture. Now, this is Paul writing before the canonization and before most of the New Testament letters were even written. Paul is referring to the Bible that he preached from when he went around to the synagogues. And that Bible was the Old Testament, And he said, all scripture, all of it, all of it, without exception, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Teaching is another word, is the English word for the Hebrew word Torah, right? For reproof, when you reprove your kid, for correction, when you correct your child, for training, when you train your child in righteousness or in justice, what are you teaching your child? Law. You're teaching them laws. Now, we are teaching the law under a canopy of grace, not under condemnation of the law. That's why it's an easy yoke. And, and we're not expecting perfection, but we are expecting guidance. See what I mean? Get you going in the right direction. <clears throat> Moving on. Therefore, all the scriptures must be preached by the church. As Paul says, we must preach the whole counsel of God. We cannot cannot exclude large swaths of the scripture or else we are damning our people to failed lives and to a lack of blessing and happiness. And, And one of the main reasons why churches are impotent and their people are impotent and broken and frail and uh and soft and not making much difference at all in the world is because they 
aren't preached the Bible. They're not preached the law of God and all, of, all that it says. We have to, if you want to be reformed in your heart, in your life, in your, in your family, in, the, in this town, the law of God must be taught in all of its detail. Amen. And, uh, and the belief that just the New Testament is, our, is the law for the Gentiles is a demonic teaching. It is a demonic curse on the church that has led to our impotency and our irrelevancy in the world completely. And one last thing on the revelation of God. How many times does God have to say a law for it to stick? One time. Good. I think that's common sense, but there are a lot of people who think just because it's mentioned one time in some obscure passage in the Old Testament that they don't need to think about it that much. Not, not at all. It may not be the most important law. You know, we don't want to be gnat strainers and camel swallowers, but we don't want to eat gnats either. At least I don't, right? <laughs> all right. Moving on. Um, to the, do the standards of God's law vary in time or place? No. Now, you see, one of the myths is that there are certain Old Testament laws, and now they're gone. They're gone, and we no longer have to obey any of those particular laws anymore. But um, if the law, as we have shown, is a, a picture of God's character, and God never changes, then the law would therefore never change. Okay, if it reveals God's character, who never changes, then the law does not change. And there is not a single law in anywhere in the scriptures that has ever changed in its essence. Now, they change in form. Some laws change in form. For example, we are not delivering um, lambs, literal lambs here this morning. That law has changed in its outward form. But the essence of the law remains because we come here in the name of the Lamb of God and we offer that tribute lamb up to God as the, the means of our atonement. And we do that through faith every single Sunday when we take communion or when we sing to him. We are singing with, in essence, the lamb as our atoning sacrifice. So the law hasn't utterly changed and it hasn't been dissolved. It changes in its external form. Does everyone understand? And those are only the ceremonial laws. So I teach this to my kids in school. When they're little, they have to raise their hand to speak in class. But the essence of that command is what? Yeah, love your neighbor by letting them have some space so they can talk too. And honor your instructor um, so that they don't have to talk over your voice. That's just love. That's selflessness. That's how to get along in a, in a group of other humans. But when we get to a certain age, having learned the essence of that law and having matured, we don't necessarily have to raise our hand to speak in public, right? Which would be hilarious if we all still did that. If everywhere you, you went, humans were walking in straight lines, right? And raising their hands to speak. Some people need to go back to that because they never learned it. They don't know how to move over to the right side of the sidewalk because they never had parents. Um, uh, and so they need to learn how to walk in line again. But generally speaking, people that have learned those, the essence of those laws no longer have to follow that outward childish form. And so, yes, some laws change in their form, but they never change in their essence because they're a revelation of God's character. Who never changes? Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. 
or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to bring them to their full fruition, to see them blossom. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, the gnats, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches their children them or their congregation will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Who wants to be great in the kingdom of heaven? I do. That won't make you great in the eyes of uh, the church elite or the powers that be, uh, but it will make you great in the kingdom. And so let us make sure that we are teaching our children and one another through word and through deed and through modeling, etc., all the laws of the Bible. Now, are all these laws for all men? We've taught through this thing so many times. So, yes, it is universal. God's sovereignty is universal, and his law is therefore universal. Amen. Genesis 49, verse 10. I'll show you this. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Isaiah 33, 22. In the Old Testament, for the Lord, that's Yahweh, is our judge. Now, the New Testament reveals to us that Yahweh is indeed who? Jesus. That's right. So we could say, for Jesus is our judge, and Jesus is our lawgiver, and Jesus is our king. He will save us. Now, in Isaiah, had Jesus come yet? No. In Isaiah, weren't they following the law of Moses? But here we learn that the law, that the Lord is our lawgiver. I thought Moses was the lawgiver. No, ultimately, the Lord is the lawgiver. Moses is just a servant in the house. Jesus was the Lord and the lawgiver in the Old Testament, and he is the Lord and the lawgiver in the New Testament. There's not new laws. There's not changed laws. Same God, same lawgiver, same law. Let's look at Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Even all the way back in Genesis, Jesus is the lawgiver. Jesus is the king, the one who rules with his scepter. Amen? And therefore, if you want to reform anything, you have to declare all the counsel of God. You have to declare all of his law, including the Old Testament. Amen. Now, do these standards apply to the civil realm, to politicians? Right? Absolutely, absolutely. Do we have politicians and civil rulers that bow the knee to King Jesus? It doesn't seem so, maybe a few, but in general, they are bowing the knee to what they might think of as general laws or natural laws. Or, or I, I think most politicians, even the ones that would claim themselves to be Christian, think that it is uncouth and tacky to mention Jesus and that we should obey his commandments. They think, they really, they actually think we should make, save room and make space for other, Christ, other non-Christians. And, but the problem with that is it is essentially political polytheism. They're basically saying let's make room for Allah and for Zeus and for the self and for Satan. Let's all have a seat at the table. I don't, want to, I don't want to preach and teach and instruct my law from Jesus. I want other people to be able to have equal footing. That's, that's like saying Jesus is one of many gods. No, the, the laws of God apply over the civil realm. And if you don't have Jesus' law over any realm, you have someone else's law, another lawgiver, another God, and it's doomed to fail. 
So if you're doing business according to Simon Sinek, count, count it. It's going to fail. It must be according to Jesus. If you're doing law according to anyone other than Jesus or science or politics or business or art or parenting, and it's not according to the law of God, don't think that it's going to be potent and powerful and fruitful and successful. Amen. All right. So as Aaron wanted us to do, we're going to do that. Isn't this legalism, Pastor? It's not legalism, right? David said, I delight in the law of God. Is he a legalist? No. Jesus taught us to follow all the commandments. Is he a legalist? No, of course not. But legalism is real. Legalism is real. And here, are, here is what legalism does. It, this is legalism. Legalism is, and there's four or five things, keeping the law of God with the wrong motives, like for the praise of men. Right? You tithe and you do it for the praise of men, for example. Okay? Um, <clears throat> another form of legalism is teaching the law of God without understanding. The Bible says that not many should be teachers, and there are a lot of legalists who run around teaching the Bible and God's law, and they don't know what they're talking about. Those are legalists. Um, They're on Facebook, and thank God we don't have a bunch of wannabe teachers all over Facebook um, who lack understanding. It's embarrassing to a pastor. The same way when a, a woman is blasting someone on Facebook and she's married, it's embarrassing to her husband. You understand what I mean? That's embarrassing. Like when a woman comes at me on Facebook in a public forum, like try to teach me or rebuke me, the only thought I have is where is her husband? That's so embarrassing. Like if I saw my wife do that, she would never do that. But that would be as bad as her trying to like fight a bad guy in the street. Like what are you doing? Like get out of the way. Like that's not your calling. You're making me look like a punk, right? That's what's so gross. It's so gross and ugly. And I'm just, we, we don't want to do that. But those people who think of themselves as, as teachers and ministers and holy men and they lack understanding and they're trying to tell everyone what to do, that's another form of, that's a legalist. That's another form of it. And another one is adding traditions to the law, right? Adding man's traditions to the law of God. The teaching of abstinence is legalism. That's legalism. And it's demonic. It's a demonic legalistic teaching. The Bible says that explicitly. Now, it doesn't mean you can't abstain from some things. Our eight-year-olds are supposed to abstain from sex. Why? They're not mature. They're not mature enough. Our our 10-year-olds are supposed to abstain from taking a prescription medicine without supervision. My, my My kids all abstain from alcohol and from uh, sex, and they abstain from uh, a lot of things, driving by themselves, right? But that's because they're not yet mature enough for it. That's fine. And then there are times in life where you might fall into a particular sin where it would be wise for you to abstain for a season, right? Fasting is a good thing. It's called fasting in the Bible, and it's good to fast. Paul even talks about fasting from sex for a season, as long as it's not against the wishes of your spouse. So there's not anything wrong with fasting. The teaching that abstaining from God's good gifts can make you whole and fix you and sanctify you is satanic, and it is legalistic. And a lot of people teach abstinence, and they, and they, they think they're teaching wisdom, but they lack understanding, and what they're actually teaching is, is uh, 
satanic legalism. And satanic legalism does very little for your body and for your spiritual health. It does not make you more mature. It keeps you in a perpetual juicy juice box Christianity. It, cre- it keeps you in an immature Christianity. A Christianity that can't handle power tools because you're just immature and, no one, and everyone always taught you that that's not good to do because you could cut a finger off. Well, I don't want to raise kids that can't handle power tools. I don't want to raise kids with less than 10 fingers either, right? <laughs> so, so we wait. And if I, go, if I go in there and see them misbehaving with the power tools, well, back, back to abstinence for you, right? <laughs> but what we don't teach is that abstaining from God's good gifts, even the dangerous ones, even the powerful ones like fire, um, is a way of holiness and sanctification. We don't teach that. That's legalism. That's legalism, right? <clears throat> and another form of legalism is using the law as a self-justification project, right? We all use everything in our bad moments as a self-justification project. You know, look at me, God. Look at me, other people. I'm righteous. I'm worthy. If anyone is going to be saved around here, it's me. Right? That, and, we do, and a lot of people do that with their business. They do that with their work, with their, their, the size of their house or their fancy car or the way they dress or the way they look. They're basically saying to the world, I'm made. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. There's a guy in, um, in Saudi Arabia, I believe, that carved his name in the sand so big that you can see it from sa- satellites. It's one giant self-justification project. He's like, God, do you see me down right here? I'm a, I'm a pretty big deal right? And I should be saved. I, I'm, I'm good. If you use the law that way, that's how the Pharisees use the law. The law is not a ladder that you use to climb up into the acceptance and presence of God. That's legalism. First Timothy chapter 1 verse 8. <clears throat> now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. See, that, that's, the, that's the essence of legalism. They're using the law incorrectly. Incorrectly. Very good. Um, A few more things, the classifications of God's law. I want to go through this real quick. In tradition, in even Reformed tradition and evangelical tradition, the law of God is divided into three types or three categories. Does anyone know them? The moral, civil, and the ceremonial. Uh, I, I reject that particular classification. I don't think it's as helpful as another classification. It's it can be helpful, but let me ask you, is remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy, is that moral or is that ceremonial? Yes. <laughs> what about abortion? Is that a civil issue or a moral issue? You see how the categories, we have some problems with the categories. And we know in, in logic class, if you're going to separate things from genus and species, you can't, you can't do that if, there's a, if the species can overlap into another genus, so to speak. Like if you want to say cats. You can't say Persian, uh, tiger, white. Like, no, a white cat, you can't, that's not a a part of the element of of cat. Um, Anyway, you understand. Because it doesn't overlap and work right, I think there's a better classification. So I I would encourage you to think of it as moral and ceremonial. Moral and ceremonial, the two categories of Scripture. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 has the two categories for us. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Love being the essence of the law. 
and put in contradistinction to sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And there's several places in the Bible where you see these two categories, the moral law and then the ceremonial. And why is the ceremonial separate? Because the ceremonial was destined to evolve in its form. The ceremonial is like hand raising. Eventually, you don't have to raise your hand to talk. Eventually, you don't have to sacrifice lambs at the temple. That, the ceremonial would evolve, but the moral remains. So when we talk about the civil sphere and mur- uh, executing murderers, is that moral? That's moral. Or when we talk about saving babies and not aborting them, that's moral. Or when we talk about using just weights and measures, that's moral. Or not putting funding for Ukraine and Israel in a bill for funding the military so that people have to compromise on what they want to do. And that's, those are moral issues. Those are forms of lying and manipulation. It's all moral. And then, <clears throat> finally, how do we interpret the law? Quick rules. Number one. Only God sets aside a law. He gave it. He's the lawgiver. Only he can take it away. And so unless he explicitly abrogates that law and takes it away or changes its form, the law remains in effect today. Deuteronomy 4.2, do not add to it nor take away from the law of God. And rule number two, each law has to be examined carefully in its own context. We We are not trying to mimic their agrarian culture. But you have to pull out the laws referring to oxen, for example. You have to pull out the essence or the principle of that law from its cultural context and then apply it to your particular cultural context. That's how you would do that. And uh, does that take time and practice and study and having a good uh, teacher? Yes. But that's how you do it. So, for example, today we're going to read a passage from Deuteronomy 8 in the sermon about the gift of the promised land and what they needed to do if they were going to possess the land. You will have to, the entire time, learn to pull the essence out and apply it to this life. One of the things they had to do was mine the stones and the caves in the promised land if they were going to get out the copper. One of their commandments was to mine. Another one of their commandments was to farm. That's not our specialization I don't think so. I don't think any of you are miners or farmers. But that, what we apply that to our own specializations and our own unique callings and our own fields or mines of work. Make sense? So that's, that's how you do it during the sermon. All right, y'all have a great Lord's Day.